I'm Erica Ducey. And I'm Felicity Carter. And you're listening to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping drinks businesses grow and thrive. Whether you're in wine, beer, or spirits, or the non-alcoholic drink space, in functional beverages, or seltzers and sodas, we've got you covered. We take a holistic approach to drinks, looking at new business opportunities and the products and categories that get customers excited. This season, we're doing a deep dive on millennial and Gen Z audiences and their drinking behaviors. We even commissioned our own research on the topic and we'll be talking with experts all season long. Thanks for joining us and let's dive in. Hello, listeners. I'm Erica Ducey. And I'm Felicity Carter. This season, we're exploring the question on everyone's mind. Where have all the young drinkers gone? We've looked at existing research, launched our own in-depth report on what's driving the drinking behaviors of millennials and Gen Zs, and we've also spoken to some of the people who are shaping the new no and low alcohol movement. And now, it's time to shift to our favorite topic, money. Yay! Who's making it? And where are the opportunities? Uh, Along these lines, we are thrilled to speak with one of the most successful people in the world of non-alcoholic beverages who can definitely answer this question. Bill Schufeld, co-founder and CEO of Athletic Brewing. Bill knows a lot about money. He started his career as a hedge fund manager, but he gave that up to pursue his love of craft beer and in the process changed the entire drinks market. He co-founded Athletic in 2017 with master brewer John Walker. And today, according to Nielsen data, Athletic products now account for nearly half of all non-alcoholic craft beer sales in the U.S. And it sells north of $50 million a year of its increasingly popular non-alcoholic brews. So across five funding rounds, the company has raised some $173 million, including a $50 million investment last year from Keurig Dr. Pepper. And they've also received investment from several celebrities, including Chef David Chang of Momofuku. Felicity, what were you expecting uh, before you spoke to him? To be honest, I was expecting somebody who was a lot more hard-edged. I thought that a hedgy-turned-CEO of a multi-million dollar company would be very driven and tough, and I was expecting someone who was a lot more self-promotional and a lot less willing to answer tough questions. But as it turned out, Bill Schufeld is humble and hardworking, and he has an incredible love of beer and the craft of beer making, and it just shone through the entire conversation. Yeah, I agree. You know, he he loves the product so much that he was drinking athletics, non-alc beers all the way through the interview, which was distracting at first and kind of funny. I've never had that happen. <laughs> it was really killing me because um, we did the interview quite late at night, my time, and I hadn't had a drink all day because I needed to prepare for the interview. <laughs> Watching him slug back the beers, even though they were knowing they were not alcoholic, was quite hard. But Right. And it was mid-afternoon, his time, which just seemed so funny. <laughs> but I mean, because of his, his product, he can drink on the job. He can drink as much as he likes. Exactly. Um, yeah. I also got him to hold the packaging up to the camera because I'd heard that one of the genius things he'd done was make the design of the cans look cool and desirable. And this was in a category that until then had been almost stigmatized. And, and the designs are really cool, too. Yeah, I mean, I think the branding is is excellent. You know, it feels fresh, it feels modern, you know, outdoorsy, um, aspirational. And Athletic was 100% responsible for turning around the category of non-alc beer. Previously, it 
was seen as this backwater of barely palatable products that were about as far from cool as you could get. And as we'll hear from Bill, he was relentlessly made fun of (laughs) when he'd sample athletic products at races and events in the early years. Um, There was just so much market resistance to the idea of non-alcoholic beers. So we'll let him tell the story of how he overcame that stigma uh, because there are some pretty fun anecdotes. Yeah, especially about the uh, people in car parks. That was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, so listen for that. And, you know, today, not only is there no stigma, but non-alcoholic beer is a lucrative and growing category. And that's largely thanks to athletic brewing. Now, speaking of our favorite topic, money, after we finished recording and we we turned it all off, I actually said to him, "Could could I give him my money and invest in athletic brewing? Because you only have to listen to him tell the story to understand why it's a great business. Um, He didn't actually want my money, but he did tell us where there are market opportunities and how somebody else could come in and make money. Exactly. There are some great insights in there for all startups looking to find their niche and grow sustainably. So let's give a listen. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At The Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Bill, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I'd like to know, where did your love of craft beer come from? Yeah, so I've always loved beer, good food, good drink, especially good food since I was very young. So I've, I've always enjoyed beer since before I became legal drinking age. But I fell in love with craft beer. I went to college at Middlebury College in Vermont. And very luckily, some of the strongest and best, most respected regional breweries in the U.S. at the time were within a half hour of there, like Magic Hat, Long Trail, and a few others. So, What, what a great student life. Is that why you chose that college? More the skiing than the beer. All right. Okay. <laughs> the beer was a nice addition. But... Um, it turned out, yeah, so we could get great kegs of craft beer for during the week. And then we'd have like light beers on tap all weekend when we we're drinking in volume. And it it was just a great place to go to college. Nice. And so tell me, I know you started out in finance. Now, how did that background prepare you for entering the drinks business, if at all? Yeah, well, very luckily, I was I was definitely delusional when I came into the beer world. I knew way less than I thought. I'd never brewed a batch of beer in my life. But I did luckily have a lot of business experience and particularly finance experience. And for anyone who's ever operated a small business, especially in growth, the cash needs of businesses are very real. And so the ability to accurately forecast cash, model the business on the fly, constantly be adjusting those things and not needing bankers and stuff to help me do that kind of made fundraising and business building on the finance side like a little bit of a superpower for us and especially since we are so capital heavy we've built all our own manufacturing so where a lot of cpg startups kind of go into the contract manufacturing system and outsource most of the production 
Athletic Brewing has been putting metal in the ground since way before day one. That's so that's so interesting because many people in business say when the business gets the hardest is when they get that first major order because they don't have the infrastructure to fulfill it and they won't get paid for some time. So it sounds like you didn't face that. Yeah, we we did proactively raise enough capital to not only build our first brewery but do a number of like months of business and growth. Um, I, I will say the growth still caught us off guard and we did need to raise more money fairly quickly for inventory. Inventory needs were totally underestimated. You know, it's fascinating because it, it sounds like you really took a big gamble on athletic from the outset, right? And, and you were investing in already in building the breweries before it sounds like there was a lot of the financial successes. So what was it that made you take such a big gamble? I'd say passion. Yeah, me and my wife together were... Um, we put in about 90% of our life savings in Athletic. We we're by far the biggest investors in our angel round to build our first brewery, which was the first non-alcoholic brewery in the country at the time. And I always say to entrepreneurs who ask me about an idea or should they do this? And like someone who's kicking around an idea and debating making a leap similar to what I did, I ask them, is it an idea you care so deeply about you couldn't possibly turn it off? Uh, because with athletic brewing that there was an authentic need in my life where I realized that there's a big future for just unmet occasions in the beer world, in the adult beverage world in general. Like people are not drinking 99% of the hours they are awake, non-alcoholic beer is 0.3% of the beer market before we got going. And that almost seemed totally backwards to me, but there were no products, no cool marketing, nothing to help people bridge that gap. and. So the economic opportunity was like so obvious to me, but I already had a good economic opportunity in the hedge fund world. So I thought that would be, it wasn't meaningful enough for me to resign and do it full time with a lot of risk attached to it. What did make that happen was I realized what a need there was out there in the world. Um, 60% of people have 0.1 drinks or less per week. There's 15 million documented alcoholics in the country. And like, I saw this chance to give people these moderation off ramps, give them the choice to drink non-alcoholic or alcoholic offerings without compromising on their social experience, the taste or anything. And I just saw such a potential good to be done in the world by that and like bring people happiness, bring people health in all sorts of different ways, bring people connection, invite people back into spaces that they had stopped going to. And I literally couldn't sleep at night. And that's why like, even six years into this business, I still wake up early on weekends and sample people beers at races. And like, I, the fire burned so strong that I like couldn't possibly put it out. And that's kind of what I always ask entrepreneurs when they ask me about their idea. I'm like, how into your idea are you? Like, are you going to be thinking about this and wanting to do only this in 10 years? Because that's what it takes. And, um, they're, just like every step of everything is so much harder than people could ever imagine, but also more fun, rewarding and challenging in a good way too. So, um, I just want to jump in on the market opportunity because, um, so in Europe, as you know, um, non-alcoholic beers have been brewed since the 1970s and in the last decade they've been enormous. So why was there this big hole? Well, this is a two-part question. So one, why was there this big hole in the United States? And secondly, I know that 
you got rejected by lots of brewers when you went out looking for somebody to work with and you had to do a lot of experimenting for the product. How much did you experiment from scratch? How much did you know about what was being done elsewhere? And again, this question, why was there such a big hole in the United States? Yeah. So, yeah, when I was looking at the U.S. market potential, looking at Europe was a big like glaring example for us of where we could go in the future. The European non-alcoholic beer market was $8 billion at the time. It's now like $9.75 billion. The U.S. non-alcoholic beer market was $80 million. And it was just like a crazy difference. And I attribute that to non-alcoholic beer in the U.S. having such a tough and stigmatized start in Prohibition. Um, so, yeah, it emerged out of Prohibition. Like alcohol was taken away, the fun was taken away, and like something society loved was all of a sudden restricted. And this like lesser than, like really boring, terribly marketed product was substituted called near beer. And it like people wanted nothing to do with it. They settled for it when they had to. And then really nothing really changed in the innovation or marketing of near beer for another hundred years almost. It was it was about eighty years after that when Athletic and Heineken really came in and started to reinvigorate it, make it exciting. Um I I think part of that question too could be why did both markets also accelerate in growth in the last ten years? I think a big part of that is, you know, everyone has such information at their fingertips, in their phone, in their health tracking devices, in the internet. Um all of us used to get our health data from the government in like food pyramids and like doctor's recommendations and beer ads on TV. And now health information is available so widespread in podcasts, the internet, fitness wearables. And so like just our control of our own information content is so much better and it makes it easier for people to make better informed choices. And then, so if you have better information and better product availability all of a sudden at the same time, that's where I think the curve is really starting to pick up. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating because I I don't know if you saw earlier this week, the National Beer Wholesalers Association is having its big conference. And the CEO, Craig Purser, he shared his remarks in that uh, conference where he said he called essentially the beer sales decline, the steep decline that's happening, a quote, this is an industry-wide five-alarm fire. Unquote. So he basically was pointing to the pressures. One of the biggest pressures was uh, the industry's struggle to appeal to what we're talking about this season, which is millennials and Gen Zs, and in particular to younger legal drinking age Gen Zs, 21 to 24, of that cohort just in the past five years has dropped 30%. So his quote was, in plain English, the industry has lost about 30% or 2.2 million of its youngest elders. LDA consumers over the past five years, which to me is astounding because it's just it's such a reversal of where we have seen. And, you know, that's on the one side of the poll over here. And then on the other side, we have non-alc beer, which by a long shot is the fastest growing part of the beer industry. Looking at Nielsen's stats, some 352 percent growth. So I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to me that, you know, we hadn't totally 
really connected that before. I think we ha- we have talked a lot about that there is this, you know, sort of we see people on YouTube, on social media, et cetera, sharing all this information, but that it's actually on your phone at your fingertips, I think makes a huge difference. For sure. So when you're talking to younger people, when you I know you go and hand out things at, at all sorts of places. What are people telling you about why they drink alcohol or don't drink alcohol? Yeah. And so even to loop back on the other comment too, athletics general stance is we never approach it from a soapbox stance where we're telling people you shouldn't drink or anything like that. Drinking has been part of society for 5,000 years. There are a lot of positive fabric of society things that and celebrations and moments and the world is so stressful too. Like, surely don't want to take beer away from people. But at the same time, I think there's a great opportunity to give people more options and let them make their own choices and like have a very positive, aspirational, non-alcoholic beer available should they want to make that choice. What we end up seeing is that people make that choice more and more frequently and they may keep their alcohol occasions and then drink non-alcoholic beer through the week. And it's it's all these in-between paths and there's obviously a big trend about declining alcohol consumption, especially in younger consumers who actually happen to be the highest volume consumers of alcohol too, which is doubly concerning for the alcohol industry. But Athletic is very proactively working with the industry. We work with beer distributors, we work with industry partners, the on-premise, everything with education. And we're like, hey, there's this really exciting avenue of growth that could save the industry, like right over here, like put us in. And we're seeing retailers like put non-alcoholic beer in the cold box, get people excited about it, cases on the floor for 4th of July, Labor Day, and big holiday periods. And so it's it's really exciting to see the industry really start to embrace non-alcoholic beer because they're realizing it is a potential volume saver. And then, you know, when we sample, we really just let people make the choices for themselves. We tend to make like availability and marketing has to be there so that the choice is easy for people. But if they've tried it before, it's much easier to purchase a $10 six-pack in a grocery store or a four-pound four-pack in the UK. And then also, like, non-alcoholic beer was always this very much penalty box beverage. So many jokes were directed at it. It was very hard to socially hold in your hand. But we've had all these great, very qualified ambassadors now over the years, too, where J.J. Watt, the American football star, Chef David Chang, an extremely accredited chef, Carly Kloss, the supermodel, the goalkeeper on the English national team, like all these great athletes, elite athletes, chefs, celebrities have pretty much reached out organically and been excited to get involved. And, you know, when someone goes to make fun of someone now about choosing a non-alcoholic beer, it's much harder when that friend says back, well, I heard about this from J.J. Watt. You know. Right. And, you know, and I read that some 80 percent of athletics customers also drink alcohol. And so I, I feel like this is like we're on the cusp, really, of non-alcoholic beer, like really becoming a mainstream product. I've seen, you know, that you have a deal with Walmart, that there's these sort of like bigger box developments, selling developments coming down the road. And so I'm wondering, like, what do you see as sort of this trajectory for uh, for athletics? We're with the biggest grocery stores and retailers in the U.S., U.K., and Canada now. And so availability is really getting out there. It's inching out. You know, non-alcoholic beer was 0.3% of beer when we started. It's now about 1.4% of beer. In grocery, it's like 2.4% of all beer, which is starting to get more exciting. In natural channel grocery, so like the high-end, like um, more health-forward grocery stores in the U.S., 
non-alcoholic beers actually pass 10% of all beer sales in those channels. And so that's starting to point to a really exciting future because what natural channel looks like today, yeah, the entire industry eventually tends to catch up with over time. So it's a it's a really exciting indicator of where we think we're going here. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the the products themselves. So I'm curious to know, you know, was there sort of an on road product that built the athletic brand, or what did that sort of product mix look like? Knowing that now that last year you guys released 75 different beers. Yeah. So we knew we couldn't get a ton of retail facings from the start, but we have always offered a ton of variety on our e-commerce. Um, our lead products to start were our Run Wild IPA and then our Upside Down Golden Ale. So like a classic West Coast IPA and a really nice, crisp blonde ale that balance out nicely on the craft spectrum. And then we'd mix in different seasonal offerings like our All Out Stout, which is brewed to the foreign extra dark style, uh, a Mexican cerveza style beer, uh, different sours and gozas and dark beers in the fall more like wheat and spring beers in the spring and so we've got a light beer now too um that's like a really nice classic lager but it's it's so light in calories we call it a a light beer um and so it's a really well-rounded five beer portfolio lineup at retail these days but i i would say run wild and upside dawn the first two i mentioned were are two leading beers that they've won the most awards in the category they're our most popular beers and we tend to lead with those too the Radler, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd say that my favorite find of the summer was the Lemon Radler. Felicity, are you familiar with this category, like, of, of these Radlers? Yeah, because you're in Germany, so you must. Yes, yeah. And so uh, this was, is, is it actually lemonade? I wasn't sure if it was beer and lemonade, but it's, like, more or less. It's, like, this really citrusly, you know, and I found it at a restaurant and had it with a lobster roll up on the, in New England, and, like, so delicious. And I think, like, there's just such a diversity of flavors and and now even sort of like you know fancy amazing restaurants this was on their patio so less fancy and amazing but like everywhere is starting to serve athletic oh thank you we actually worked on development of that recipe with chef david chang oh wow and yeah it is i think it's it's fresh squeezed lemons that we've extracted with a like really nice light beer base also so it it is like a perfect summer beer and that'll be back this spring so this comes to an interesting question so the radler is a is a new type of drink right it's it's beer and it's it's something else but when you're talking about non-alcohol beers you're talking about why do people drink them so if it's not got alcohol why don't they just move to a different category altogether is it the ritual of drinking beer is it a particular part of the beer flavor what is it that makes somebody go yes this is fine yeah so that is most people's first reaction and there's definitely people who consume beer for the functional ingredient of alcohol Speaking of my own personal experience, one of the biggest realizations I had was like, so I used to love good beer, love food. I had like three or four work dinners a week historically at my old job and then things with friends and family. And it was just becoming five or six or seven nights of drinking a week, even if it was one or two drinks. And I wanted to be in all those places, but I didn't want the alcohol. And when I stopped drinking about 10 years ago, one of the most shocking things to me was that. I was having as much fun in all those places without the alcohol. It actually had nothing to do with the alcohol. And then I realized I was like, most of the effects of alcohol like don't even hit you for like two or three hours after you arrive. And then you're basically just dealing with it on the way home the next day, whatever. And 
I was like, I just want to be present with my friends and family, have a good meal pairing, and then get on with my life. And so that was kind of one of the main reasons I stopped drinking. And yeah, I realized that like, as some of my favorite beers I've ever had, like when I like would get off work and go meet my brother at a bar and like do happy hour with friends or something, alcohol really has nothing to do with those moments. Like the alcohol hits you so much after that, but like just being with friends and family and having something good tasting, a good meal was kind of what I was there for. So we see people like go through this realization over and over again that, um, we often challenge people to put a six pack in their fridge of both alcoholic beer and non-alcoholic beer and just see which one they go for more often. And we get emails all the time from, we call them like accidental quitters. And it, it's just like so surprising to them that they like feel compelled to reach out to the company and be like, I had no intention of drinking non-alcoholic beer or stopping drinking. And they're like, I just looked at my watch and we realized it's been six months since I've had a drink and I've been drinking nonstop, but it's all been non-alcoholic beer. And I had to tell you about this. And so it, it is a big realization we see. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of it is that ritual. I mean, so, uh, so my husband and I, we were like, we're, we're just going to drink less. And so we did start stocking athletic in the fridge. And at the end of the day, he would come home and just grab an athletic and like, he wouldn't notice. I have been mostly drinking uh, like non-alc gin and tonics and things like that. But there are, you know, some of those athletic beers. I especially love to make a michelada, but like there's times, let's call it a Saturday morning and you're having a great brunch. Like I definitely don't want alcohol then you know i want a michelada but i don't want alcohol and so can i make that with a athletic cerveza yes and that is what we do so i feel like it's like the ritual of the thing and i think especially at on premise right like that's where i especially feel the pressure of having a drink and now that there's these options such as uh athletic and like non-out cocktails it just it makes me you know, I feel like it makes everyone feel like, okay, yeah, I'm going to have that. And then maybe I'll switch to a cocktail later or whatever. But having that option is probably, I mean, I do feel like the companies that have gone into this space have done a great deal of good, even if that's not what their original intention was. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Like when people crack open a beer and smell the malt and the hops and have the ritual, it immediately like washes you over in a relaxation mode. And people do contact us and ask about like the placebo effect and like, like, do people talk to you about this? And I'm like, yes, what we think it is, is like the full sensory experience of beer. And because people have been drinking beer for thousands of years, we think it is almost in the evolution of humans at this point that like those ingredients and the environments signal like now I'm relaxed. And so I thought that was a cool add on to. What an interesting idea. That would mean that cultures that, historically drink more beer would therefore buy more of your non-alcoholic beer i think so yeah it tends to be big beer drinking cultures that like are really enthusiastic about non-alcoholic beer also for example germany is one of the best beer countries in the world and most discerning and it's also one of the biggest non-alcoholic beer markets in the world that's right when you say discerning not always i remember <laughs> there was a there was a local product for a while that had beer and banana juice <laughs> so, <laughs> speaking of which have you ever launched any uh beers that flopped what what, have, what are your insights into what doesn't work we did talk about before like getting those first batches out the door actually our first big national shipment that we were going to send out the door John and I tasted it and decided we did not love the quality of it. And 
we actually destroyed a whole truckload of beer oh, wow. when the company really couldn't afford it. And we just made that quality choice and start like waited for the next batch to be fully fermented, conditioned and canned, which cost us time and money and destruction. And so we've definitely made mistakes brewing and we take a lot of pride in the quality choices we make and those tough choices. How do you destroy a truck full of beer? <laughs> what do you do with it? Yeah. Yeah. What happens? At that point, we didn't have any fancy machines. So it was us like just crushing the cans and it worked well enough. We had to like obviously clean the floors and everything after that. But we now have these big compactors and stuff if we have to destroy stuff. Well, um, for all of our founder listeners who there are many, I know that they're crying in the background. <laughs> hearing that. But, you know, for those listeners, you know, we talk a lot about growth strategies on the podcast. And I want to know, you know, what were those early, very effective tactics that helped Athletic build a following? So I'm, I'm a huge believer in a thousand true fans, which I think was originally a Kevin Kelly concept. But I, I knew we were talking about a stigmatized category that if people saw a billboard, an ad, or saw it on the grocery store shelf, they would immediately go, non-alcoholic beer, that's not for me, and walk by. And so I needed to be in the world talking to people and sharing my passion face-to-face. -face. And so that first summer we were on market in 2018, I, I sponsored about 70 or 75 races where local race directors anywhere in New England would let me show up, run the race, set up a tent and hand out free beer. And so many of these race directors were so psyched to have me reach out because their finish line could be either at a park or a high school or something where they've never been able to have beer before. And they're like, oh. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're like, oh, free beer for our racers? Like, sure. Nice. And so 70 times that first summer, I would hand out like 500 beers a weekend, 1,000 beers a weekend, and talk to people face-to-face. -face. And I would get made fun of constantly just every joke you've ever heard like what's the point like um and all all sorts of stuff but i would tell people like you can make fun of me as much as you want if you still taste it and like don't admit it's just good beer period and i would say the turnover on those people who went from making fun of me to 90 seconds later being like what stores are you in it was unbelievably high and then like people would hang around the booth for like a half hour also and be like oh my goodness, you're the founder. Like, how do you make it? Where's your factory? Yeah, nice. Do you have a tap room? And like, really like fall in love with the brand. And like, sometimes I get to the point where I'm like talking about our troop of the trails and like big sustainability efforts and like just being in person, talking to the community face-to-face, -face, getting to go either like just a taste of the beer, but they get to experience the brand or go super deep with certain people. It really made a lot of true fans. For example this past weekend i was at a trail half marathon that it was my fourth year doing this particular race where about 750 people run this race every year and i can't tell you how many people came up to me and were like i met you in 2018 i've got to say my beer has been full of your beer every year since then and so it really was like me and john our john's our other co-founder and our brewmaster and He's in the picture on the wall behind me with Gatorade jugs brewing. Oh my gosh, I love that. But we were speaking to our, our team now, which our team is 240 people and spread out across the country and internationally. And like the main message to our team was, let's keep trying to find those next thousand true fans. And if we just are constantly doing things that don't scale 
over a long time horizon geography that's actually scaling and really meaningful. We get mm. thousands and thousands of customer emails every year, probably tens of thousands. Um, and we hear constantly like, oh, I, I met your teammate at this. I met your teammate at this. I saw your teammate in the grocery store. And I never, ever hear, I saw a billboard. I saw. So it's like the face-to-face and like making the efforts that all the other companies aren't making, I feel like goes 10x. So how do you go from handing out your isotonic sports drink at, at marathons to getting your first Whole Foods deal? Yeah. It it was very much timed at the same time. So John and I were homebrewing on Gatorade jugs. It was in the middle of construction of our first brewery that the beer started to taste good. We thought the golden ale was in a really good place. That was the first beer we brewed. We probably brewed a hundred batches of the golden ale before we were like convinced it was in a really good spot. And we were bottling them in John's garage then because construction was going on in brown bottles. And I was taking these brown bottles. I would put like 50 in my car and drive all over New England and talk to retailers. And sometimes like on days where I was like really striking out, I would ask like a customer in the parking lot to come in behind me and be like, can you just say over my shoulder, like, oh, what is that? Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And like, I'd be like, I've had a really bad day. Do you mind just like doing this little script over my shoulder as I'm talking to the person? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. And like, so like, I'd be at the counter and someone would pop their head over and be like, did you say 50 calories? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. So smart. (laughs) It was very grassroots, but credit to Whole Foods, which, I mean, Whole Foods is a great big company, but like very local everywhere. And I walked into our local Whole Foods and talked to the local forager and tasted her. It was just like a brown unlabeled bottle, like did not look fancy at all. And she tasted it. It was like, she's like, so this is all like really high in grains, non-alcoholic. It's four clean ingredients. She's like, I could see our customers really being into this and it's delicious. She's like, you know, I'm just going to call New Jersey Regional and you should go in there next week. And so she helped me bridge to the New Jersey Regional office and credit to the two guys, Justin and Chris at Whole Foods Regional, who oversaw beer and specialty. When we got there, it was just a box with nine beers in it. And um, same thing. They're like, we've been waiting for this. They're like, we think this is going to be huge. And they're like, we'd love to test you in the Connecticut stores. And they didn't even ask, like, what do the cans look like? What does anything look like? They're like, we love this. We love your ethos. We love your company mission. And so they gave us a trial in Connecticut. And then they were the first retailer. Whole Foods and Total Wine really took us nationally as fast as we were ready to go, basically. So credit to Whole Foods. They, they've they really led in terms of growth in this category. I'm sure their beer results look totally differentiated versus the nation right now. So Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm curious. So... Across five different funding rounds, Athletic has raised some $173 million, including one of the most recent, which was a $50 million investment from Keurig Dr. Pepper. So what was it that made KDP a good strategic partner for Athletic? Yeah. So even with our first round, it took me about 120 investor meetings to raise our first angel round. Wow. You know, there was, yeah, there was no market. There was no one talking about it, no buzz. And the 66 people who believed in me and John have been awesome supporters. And it was basically that initial group of just individuals who took us all the way through our angel round series A and series B, and then Alliance Consumer Growth, who was already on our board, 
I had actually met them at a local farmer's market. They led our Series C, and then our Series D was led by Keurig Dr. Pepper. And kind of the strategic rationale there was we did talk to a lot of different groups for that, anything from family offices to big corporations and private equity and stuff. And we really thought the best alignment was there. A, it was, it sounds cheesy, but it was really the people there, like so sharp, such good people, so collaborative and fast. And they didn't feel like a big company, even though they are like a really powerful big company. And, you know, all along the life of Athletic, we'd been learning our own lessons and driving. We'd basically like drive from one ditch into the other ditch, into the other, and like, it was like so appealing to us for the first time to have someone we could potentially just ask a lot of questions to, even if like we weren't officially working together on any projects, we could say, Hey, how do you do your natural gas hedging? How do you do your logistics? How do you do like, how do you think about supply chain forecasting? And just like, all these below the line items have been really helpful in a lot of ways. So. so it's very hard when you're building a business and, you know, it's out, you start off handing out samples and, and then you're pitching to venture capital. At what point did you stop being the salesperson and did you get a sales team? At, at what point did you start bringing other people on and, and build employees? Yeah. Um, well, definitely never. Um, and my wife was so relieved to hear I'd started to hire a sales team. And I was like, this doesn't change anything. <laughs> but, uh, we have an incredible group of teammates. And we saw the early green shoots of the category. The The hypotheses that John and I had in our business plan were really playing out. And we were blowing through our growth plans. And that gave us confidence to hire a sales team. Probably faster than sales warranted. But I do think that in-person connection, having someone in every state that we sell beer in, is so important to be talking to retailers and stuff. So... We did build out our sales team ahead of schedule, um, and the team has has been so impactful in building Athletic. Uh, we've been incredibly lucky to get some really passionate and talented people. And even though the first two ideas came from me and John, like almost every idea since then has come from our amazing team. So we have two hundred and forty four teammates spread across the country. Wow! So. It- Let's talk for a minute about channel strategy. Um, so we've got, you know, DTC. Then we've got uh, the retail bricks and mortar. We got hospitality. You know, what what channels are you really seeing either grow or shrink? And I'm curious about what that says about the overall consumer purchasing landscape. And uh, particularly because we've talked so much about how expensive it is from a customer acquisition cost online. You know, a, a lot of challenges that founders sort of across the board are facing at brands. What are you seeing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm a firm believer that the pendulum swings also. When we launched in 2018, there were really almost no beverage brands even outside of beer on D2C. And yeah, everyone told me that like we we're silly for thinking about actually packing and shipping beer in the mail. And I was like, it's legal. And we don't have to launch full retail distribution to get beer all across the country. And I was like, you know, if 10 people order a day, I'll mail 10 packages. And that's what it started with. And it very quickly scaled up from five a day to 10 a day to 30 a day. And then I was coming in on Mondays and 90 orders would have come in over the weekend. And it, it really built on its own and um, definitely a credit to the product John and the team were making. So like the pendulum was all the way at zero before. And then I think, over the last like 
I don't know what year Warby Parker started, but it might have been like 2014 around then or something. And Instagram was like a year or two before that, probably. And the growth curve and the speed of startup expectations just went off the charts. And people came to think of like starting a business as a like three year journey, like start to finish. And we're really, that's just like not how business had ever, ever worked. You know, like, sure, like light, lightning in a bottle does happen sometimes, but like, starting a business is usually a decades long commitment. And I think in the 2010s and early 2020s, people got conditioned to things happening overnight, 20% monthly sequential growth, hundreds of percent year over year growth, dumping as much venture capital as you can into the ad machine and just fueling a parabolic curve. And it, it was just all so, un, so unsustainable. Like everyone's using the same software plugins, websites, digital ads, and, the same agencies running the same playbooks. And I think consumers just got sick of the inauthenticity being like sold to all the time. And I think people also lost sense for building stable financial businesses too. And so there was a while in 2018, 2019 and 2020, I'd say mostly 2018, 2019, where like digital advertising was incredibly effective. 2020, we were very lucky to have built an e-commerce platform ahead of the pandemic. Um, so that was all set up and ready to go. Uh, we had in-house fulfillment also, so we didn't have to rely on supply chain or anything. But then 2021, a year into the pandemic, the whole space got completely crowded and kind of hit a wall on the other side of the pendulum. And now it seems to be going back towards the zero side, like pretty fast. And I feel like in the middle is somewhere the right, like I think businesses need to be true omni-channel businesses. There are certain customers who are forever online customers and love the convenience. And I think there's certain customers who love the retail shopping experience. And I think there's less crossover than people think. And so I, I think you have to be thoughtful about how you approach all areas of business. And But at the same time, it is amazing that entrepreneurs can find MPV and proof of concept in an online format and like run small tests and iterate and at Athletic Brewing, we early on we used e-commerce as like a national tap room essentially, so we could talk directly to our customers, get their feedback directly, and iterate as fast as we could. Now we use e-commerce as an innovation channel, where um, most beverage and CPG companies test all their innovation on retailer shelves. And wow. for example, some of the big beer suppliers launch like thirty-five or fifty innovation products a year on retailer shelves. And they might only keep five of those for the next year. And so it is all this like churn and waste at the retail and distributor level where Athletic can do all that testing on our own platform, get direct feedback, release things a couple times, see what's super popular. Yeah. And then when we go to retail and distributor, we can go, this is by far and our way our most popular product of last year. We think you should have it on the shelf this year. And like, they're so psyched to see that data. And so it's a great innovation test for us, but also um, we try to bring great convenience and experience to our customers on that channel as well for people who prefer that part of omni-channel versus brick and mortar. Um, and I, I do always think there's going to be a great space for online. But I think kind of like the business timeline expectations, people need to be realistic about their advertising budgets in all channels because it business is the timelines of business are being extended again. Um, I think short-term flipping expectations of new entrepreneurs are 
going way down and people have to be scrappier and bootstrap and be profitable. So, you know, the days of going back to spending like 500 or $1,000 on e-commerce advertising might be a new reality for a lot of small businesses. Can I just go back to the question of launching new products? How much of it is online only? How much do you do physical tastings? How much do you still hand them out? Like if you're going to experiment or launch a new product, what, what do you do to do it? Yeah. So we're tinkers at heart, and our team in general loves just trying new things and tasting them ourselves. So I would say everything starts within the athletic walls. There's usually any teammate, it doesn't necessarily have to be in brewing, brings an idea to one of our brewers and is like, hey, can we try making this? And it could be a beer idea. It could be like a seasonal beer idea, or it could be totally off the wall, functional beverage or something. And, you know, we tend to try to make it. We see how it tastes. If it tastes good, we share it with the team. We'll put it in the fridges around the brewery for a few weeks. And if it's popular, then it has a chance of getting out the door to e-commerce. So we tend to try stuff ourselves, then try stuff on e-commerce after that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about going mainstream for a second. So, you know, recently at Business of Drinks, we launched a big study that we did of millennials and Gen Z's drinking behavior. So we surveyed about 1,300 people all around the country, and we found that 7% of millennials and nearly 9% of Gen Z's said that they drink non-alcohol beer at least two to three times a month. And so, like, that's where we are right now. But I, I wonder, you know, given your position in this kind of driver's seat of this exploding category, what do you think in terms of how big can it get? I'm definitely the wrong person to ask and definitely the most delusional. <laughs> I don't drink, but I'm a huge consumer of non-alcoholic products in general. And But I, I've seen it and like there's so much anecdotal evidence and I feel like the health data is there, the trends are there and everything. And uh, getting to 10 to 20% of adult beverages seems to be such a no-brainer. And for for it to go to like 2.5% and then go back to zero with like the health and wellness tailwinds that are behind the category, I, I would find just so hard to believe and improbable that like 10 to 20% seems like a path of very little resistance um, over call it a five to 10 year time frame. But over longer term time frames, um, I think it's probably going way past that. Logic would say people are consuming alcohol in such specific occasions that like the subset of occasions where people are not consuming alcohol is just so much bigger. If their products available and they're well marketed and readily available. It just seems like it's going to be a really big percentage of adult beverage occasions. Yeah, I remember when the Kindle came out in publishing, it was it was wisdom that if you could get 2% of the market, it would turn into 20%. And that's exactly what happened. Once it hit 2%, it went to 20% of the book market, which might have nothing to do with beer, but it's interesting. And just going back to demographics, obviously, you've got a very wide audience, but can you break down that audience a bit? Do you know who your biggest customers are? Who's least likely to try the product? You know, can you give us an overview of who's drinking it? Absolutely. Um, actually, to touch on your Kindle example, too, um, someone I was talking to recently used a almost identical example with electric cars, mm. which we see playing out these days where it took a certain amount of social proof and availability and affordability, charger networks to get there. But they I forget what stat they said, but as soon as it hits X percent, it gets so easy to get to like 30 percent or something. So interesting. Maybe it's one of those phenomenon. Maybe it's like the Pareto principle. We, we've stumbled into something here. <laughs> yeah. 
We should look for other things that are crossing 2%. We should, and then we can launch a paper. (laughs) And you can get out of beer and go into research. Okay, so demographics. What do you know about the demographics? Yeah, so we walked into a really interesting category, um, both where non-alcoholic beer was when we entered the category, but also where beer in general is and who beer speaks to. Um, And beer in general for a long time has been almost 70% male and 30% female generally, um, especially craft beer has been worse than overall beer in that sense too. And I think that's in terms of like marketing and availability and designing products for different audiences. And in non-alcoholic beer particularly, non-alcoholic beer was generally a much older audience. Uh, 75% of non-alcoholic beer drinkers were over age 45 when we entered the category. And it was a significant amount over age 55. And that's almost flipped since we came in. It's now 75% under 45 and increasingly so in the under 35 cohort every year. And uh, because we do have e-commerce, we have a really good read on who our consumers are. And right now we're at about 47% female, 53% male. So it is very close to... Wow. And we... um just myself as a craft beer consumer and I love the craft beer category and um, like I had observed that I think craft beer had this really great opportunity to come in and market to everyone and it was a totally differentiated beer craft beer was very often local and ingredients and had the opportunity to do all this storytelling and welcome everyone from all communities in and somehow beer craft beer ended up going almost towards like the wine world where it was for like such high-end specific consumers and we wanted to open that aperture back up and like try to make non-alcoholic beers trialable approachable exciting and we try to market towards all different channels sample in all different um, areas and communities all over the country and so trying to be really intentional about casting a wider net than beer typically has been so i'm trying to not only do growth and occasion, but growth and population as well. Mm. And to wrap us up, you know, now that you've opened the door to this category and made it cool, all of the big players have moved into the space. So given how deep their pockets are, what is it that athletic brewing can do to stay ahead and keep that high market share? Yeah, I'm honestly so excited to have them in the category. So we have we have a cohort of people coming of legal drinking age these days who open up a menu. And in 2017, there were no name brands on the left side of the page and now are on the non-alcoholic side of the page. Now, when they open it up, it is every name brand. There's Athletic, of course, but Heineken, Guinness, Peroni, Corona, Stella, Bud. So just like so many exciting brands and then same in the liquor and everything like so it makes it very frictionless for people to choose between non-alcoholic beer and alcoholic for the first time if all the cool brands are on both sides of the page. So I, I love that. I love that people are investing in the category. I wish people would invest more in it and marketing especially. I think I think Heineken and Guinness are doing a good job marketing the category, but not many other brands are spending in the category yet. Um, and then it, But what gives us confidence that we can continue to win is execution and focus. Um, we are competing against mostly uh, the biggest beverage alcohol brands in the world. Athletic drove the most dollar growth in the category in 2023, but the six next brands after us are the biggest beverage alcohol companies in the world. And so it's not easy competition, but they have big portfolios. So while their budgets are big, their budgets and focus for non-alcoholic beer 
tend to be very small. And if like employee XYZ from number three biggest beverage out company in the world walks into a retailer, they've got an iPad with probably 240 different priorities on it. And non-alcoholic beer is like number 67. Like the odds that they're going to talk about it in the first place, but also like try to build a case stack of it, it. It's just so far down the list that it's like our team is so focused on this category um, that it gives us an advantage. It It is also somewhat confusing for customers as well, where, you know, if alcohol companies are talking about alcohol versions of everything and then non-alcoholic versions of it. Like, I'd like to see people do a better job of clarifying that they have those options. And what we're seeing in a lot of countries is that it's not necessarily the big BevElk players who are leading the growth. It's more people focused on the category and doing a really thoughtful job with it um, and engaging with the community. So actually what you're, what you're saying is there's space for somebody small yep, to come in and sure. establish themselves. Yeah, and that's a lot easier when that is your primary focus for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Bill. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's been amazing. And, and I will say that as we've been recording, Bill has been uh, sipping an athletic brew the entire time, and now I am thirsty. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, it's super easy for people to get it. More information on athleticbrewing.com. But thank you so much for having me on. It was so much fun. Find out more about millennial and Gen Z audiences. We've surveyed more than 1,300 Gen Zs and millennials from across the US asking them everything we wanted to know. We worked with a designer. It's very easy to navigate and understand. And it's available through researchandmarkets.com, one of the world's best market research stores. The study offers a clear action plan to everyone who works in beverages, from alcohol brands to soft drink companies to regional wine bodies to importers and distributors. It's for anyone who's looking to understand millennial and Gen Z drinking behavior and to sell more effectively to these younger audiences. From what styles people are drinking at which specific occasions to what motivates them to choose and buy what they do. There are plenty of insights to help marketers and producers with their product development, sales and advertising. So Erica, how do people get hold of it? Well, we've made it very easy. We've got a link to the report in the show notes, or you can go to researchandmarkets.com and search for the name of the report. It's Millennials and Gen Z, a comprehensive study of alcohol and non-alcohol beverage purchase and consumption behavior. If you just type in Millennials and Gen Z, it will pop right up. And if you don't want to buy the report, keep your eyes on the beverage trade media in the coming weeks as we will be doing a lot of media appearances. Yeah, but of course you do want to buy the report, I guarantee. And please note, this is the first of what we are hoping will be many reports. In fact, if you've got a burning question and you want it answered with serious research, Send us an email as we can set the research in motion. It's info at businessofdrinks.com. Here we are at Last Call, the part of the episode where we talk about what we're drinking. So Felicity, what are you drinking this week? Okay, so we said we were going to go back to drinking alcohol and I had a nice wine lined up already in the fridge, but then I got derailed. My partner, Michael, had decided to help me get through the non-alcoholic period and he'd ordered some drinks for me and they finally arrived. In the mix were a couple of bottles of Ramune or Japanese lemonade because uh, Michael's very much in love with Japanese culture. Now, everybody in the world has drunk this except me, I know, but um, I've discovered it for the first time and Ramune is the coolest thing. 
thing. Yeah. To open the bottle, you have to strip off the wrapping and pull off the plastic top. And the top comes in two pieces and you have to press out the middle piece. You then use this to plunge it into the neck of the bottle and it releases a glass marble which falls into the liquid. So before you can pour the lemonade, you have to grip the indents in the bottle and pour. And if you don't, the marble floats back up and blocks the flow of liquid. So I looked up, you know, where this all came from. And apparently these types of bottles called cod bottles were once commonly used for carbonated drinks, Mm. but they're now only found in Ramune. And I don't know why everybody stopped using them because they're extremely cool, though maybe, I don't know, maybe they're hard to make, but they're excellent. So the drink itself was introduced into Japan in the late 19th century by a British pharmacist who sold it as a protection against cholera. No way. Does it protect against cholera? I very much doubt it because it's very sugary. And if you drank too much of this, I think you would be running for the water, which uh, if it was cholera filled, uh, would be no protection. So I don't think it's a drink I'm ever going to embrace, but I think Everybody should try it at least one because it's it's amazingly good fun opening and pouring it. And it comes, needless to say, in lots of flavors. What about you, Erica? What have you been drinking? Yeah, on Ramune, they're so popular here in the States. You know, you go into the Asian markets and there's a ton of flavors. So my kids, they love the peach flavor, there's strawberry flavor, lychee, all these different things. And it's just like this sort of like tactile pleasure out of like plunging that little marble in there. (laughs) And even my eight-year-old, she will not have it if my husband or I try to help her plunge the thing down, which is kind of difficult. She has to do it herself. But it's so cool that that's what helps, like that's what gives it the carbonation in this drink, um, which is just like so unusual. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay, so what have you been drinking? So, uh, you know, finishing up on the non-alk um, sort of tangent, there is one cocktail that I am so excited about. So St. Agrestus is a company. It's a distillery in Brooklyn. It makes its own spirits, liqueurs, and vermouth. And I know it mostly for its high-octane products, which include this awesome boxed Negroni. It's like 1.75 liters. And this is like the thing that, yeah, if you bring this to the house party, you are the star of the party because it's it's such a cool product and a cool thing. And, and the quality of the Negronis are just amazing. But I first became acquainted with them probably in like, I don't know, 2018 or so, when they started doing this very cool shaped bottle that's a, you know, a high octane Negroni in this sort of triangular bottle. It's great packaging. And, uh, you know, you can pop them into your bag, drink at the park or at the beach or wherever you're looking to take a portable cocktail. So a couple of years ago, when they started introducing the non-alk versions of their products, I knew they'd be pretty good, but I hadn't tried them until recently. And I have to say, from a flavor perspective, the phony Negroni, which is their sort of core offering, cute name too, it's it's virtually indistinguishable from a high octane Negroni. Um, you know, it's got those same juniper and citrus notes, the same bitterness, the same sort of viscosity, largely from sugar in this case. And the only place that it differs from the high octane version is that they add a bit of carbonation in this non-alk product to mimic that bite that you would typically get from alcohol. And I mean, it really is just 
an incredible product. And I've seen it start to pop up, you know, not just at retail, but also at restaurants and bars. And they, you know, bring the bottle over to your table and pop off the top and, you know, pour it over ice with an orange twist. And you've got a very high quality Negroni. And along with the the new, the Negroni that is the core sort of product. They also have some new ones I noticed that I have not yet had the chance to taste uh, that are non-ALK products. It's a Mezcal Negroni and a non-ALK Amaro. So I'm looking forward to trying both of those. But yeah, this is another brand in the ALK and non-ALK space uh, that is really crushing it. It sounds amazing. I'd love to try it. But it, it seems to me that, that bitterness has a lot to do with whether a, a something works as a non-ALK uh, product or not. You know, Derek Brown talked about piquancy and, and anything that's got that citrus, uh, you know, acidity plus maybe some orange bitterness seems to work really well. Yeah, definitely. I think there's really something to that. It's just that layering of flavors that gets you so close to uh, like it's it's like the, the dupe of the full strength one or the analog, really. And they're just so close to the high octane version that I really feel like I just I don't miss the alcohol. And um, hey, maybe even feel better the next day. So <laughs> there we are. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. Follow us on Apple and Spotify or wherever you're listening and tap that notification button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Also, please help us spread the word. Tap those star ratings and share on social. It truly helps us get noticed. And if there's something that you would like us to cover on the podcast, tell us. We're at podcast at businessofdrinks.com or contact us on LinkedIn. We want to hear from you and we really do respond to messages. See you soon.